0: It's going to be a beautiful last day. It has been such a pleasure so far to be with all of you uh, and seeing so many people actively having a great time with their writing. And it is now my pleasure to introduce my eldest son who will be uh, cleaning out. He'll get first dibs of which part of the house to clean out when I go. Please, please welcome the best moderator on a Thursday afternoon,
1: Jay Dowell.
2: All right. Yes, I am clearly the best Thursday panel moderator here. Um, And also as a side note to doing two of these in a day after doing a two and a half hour session and then right into a panel, Um, it's potentially not a great tactical decision to stay up until 3 o'clock in the morning at Pirates the night before. So I apologize in advance if I tumble to the floor unconscious at any point during the proceedings. Um, Welcome. I'm glad to see so many seats filled. We've got a great panel with some fantastic authors. I'm just going to take a quick note that uh, it's Thursday. I know everybody's flagging a little bit. There's still time to do what everyone should be doing, and that is making connections, talking to people, making new friends. It's super, super important. I've, I've said this a couple of times during the conference, so if you've heard this before, I, I apologize, but my first time here was 2011, and I did everything the wrong way. <laughs> I ate dinner in my room every night, with room service because I was terrified that people would figure out that I was a poser and that I didn't belong because I was just a guy who had written a couple of short stories and didn't think that I could compete with real writers that were at the conference. And I didn't think of myself as one. We are all writers and I don't care how experienced you are, I don't care whether or not you've never published a single thing, I don't care if you've only dreamt about being a writer. If you're here, you've made the commitment, you are writers and use every bit of the time you have left to engage with people, to go and learn things, to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. It's not too late. you still got a day and a half, and I I want you all to take as much advantage of it as you can. So, a big hand to everybody for being at the conference. All right, so. It's time to meet the wonderful panel that we have here today. These are folks that are very, very skilled in memoir, which is a really good thing because I write about superheroes and aliens, so I really can't talk about this stuff professionally. So it's, it's, it's really helpful that we have people that are experts in the field. Okay, I'm going to start with, first in the row, um, Dr. Mary Hill Wagner is the author of Girls in the Hood, a memoir of what it was like to grow up on some of the meanest streets in America. with. 10 siblings, and a mother who taught her to protect the weak and love hard. Dr. Hill-Wagner is an award-winning author, journalist, and college professor. She enjoys reading, writing, racquetball, theater, and dogs. Please give it up for Dr. Mary Hill-Wagner. To her left is Conard Hogan, and he is an award-winning author of two memoirs, Once Upon a Kentucky Farm, Hope and Healing from Family Abuse, Alcoholism and Dysfunction, and uh, that shines a light on the struggles of those living with trauma from family abuse and the healing powers of unconditional love. His newest memoir, Barbed Wire, Brothels and Bombs in the Night, Surviving Vietnam, reminds us that no one involved in warfare escapes trauma. He hopes his writing inspires others struggling to heal from trauma themselves. So please welcome, Conard Hogan. Tara Trevor, longtime member of the uh, SBWC family, is the author of We Who Walk the Seven Ways, about the search for healing and finding belonging when native women elders embraced and guided Trevor, who is mixed blood Cherokee, Lenape, Seneca, and German, through the seven cycles of life in indigenous ways. She's a contributor to 15 books, in Native Studies and Memoir. She's the granddaughter of sharecroppers and was raised in a large extended family, rich with storytelling and music. Please say hello to Tara Trevor. (laughs) Dale Zorowski is the author of Bipolar, A Gift of Thorns, a profoundly insightful memoir about being bipolar and how that affects others. This brave book about some of the darkest aspects of our lives shines a light on her courageous journey uncovering the stigma of being bipolar. This book will help anyone who is or loves someone who is bipolar. For the last 20 years, her home base has been in Santa Barbara, California. Please say hello to Dale. Last but certainly not least is Sherry Kephart, an award-winning author, developmental editor, writing coach, and workshop facilitator. She is best known for her inspirational memoir, A Few Minor Adjustments, that Publishers Weekly called a story of gut-wrenching determination and perseverance. After serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia, Sherry brought home an African souvenir she didn't expect, a mysterious illness that almost killed her. Spoiler alert, she survived. She is a two-time winner of the San Diego Memoir Showcase, and her other publications include two companion books to the memoir, as well as essays, short stories, and poems in various literary journals, and in more than 15 anthologies. Please welcome Sherry Kephart. (laughs) So obviously, we've got a very experienced, very successful panel here, and what I want to do first is go through one at a time, and I'd like each author to talk about what inspired them to write their memoir, and kind of along with that, what's the theme of what they wrote about? What what really was the element that that made them sit down and say, I have to write this book? So if we could just go in order.
0: Uh, The subtitle of my book is actually A Memoir of Mama in South Central Los Angeles. And it began as an essay in a journalism class we were asked to write about the person we most admired. And I admired my mother to a great, uh, to a great degree. And so uh, I wrote the essay, took it to my professor, and the professor said, this could be a book. And that was many, many years ago. And I said, well, you know, I'm, really, I'm a journalist, and what's all this book writing business anyway? And, um, and I didn't think about it for a very long time. I had a career in journalism. And I didn't think about it for a very long time. And then when I left journalism, because all of the newspaper jobs were drying up, I said, I returned to this idea of this book that my journalism professor had given me the idea for. And that became Girls in the Hood. Oh.
3: Um, I tend to overcomplicate things, so <laughs> that's just me. I think uh, when I first started uh, writing either of these, the first thing I did was to write a scene in a writing class, and it was from this book. As I wrote that, I started having other memories of my experiences in Vietnam. And at some point, I said, I think I can write a book about that. But I didn't realize at the time, looking back, that I wanted to give voice to my experience there. And after that, I started working on, before I got this one published, I started working on my first one I had published with the same idea. I want to give it voice. If you don't give voice to the trauma, you don't heal as well. I had done therapy. I'm a retired marriage and family therapist. I'd done therapy. I'd done the talking part, done the emotive part. But that wasn't. When I was doing that, I wasn't talking about my experiences in Vietnam, oddly enough. So I needed to give it voice. So here's the voice, and I'm hoping that my voice carries to other people. Can I, I'm going to read something real quick here, if I may. Uh, something I have on my website, a quote from Brene Brown. One day, you will tell your story of how you overcame what you went through, and it will be someone else's survival guide.
1: My memoir has deep roots in this conference, because one of the early workshop leaders in the early 90s introduced me to the women who would inform, instruct, and guide me. And over three decades, they would bring me to be the writer and the woman that I am today sitting on this panel. So. Um, We Who Walk the Seven Ways is my memoir about seeking healing and finding belonging. After I endured a difficult loss, a circle of native women elders embraced and guided me through the seven cycles of life in the indigenous ways. I'm mixed-blood Cherokee, Lenape, and, and Seneca. Over three decades, these women lifted me from grief, instructed me in living, and showed me how to age from youth into beauty. With tender honesty, I attempt to explore, and I hope I do, how every end is always a beginning. Reflections on the deep power of women's friendship, losing a child, reconciling complicated roots, and finding richness in living in every stage of life shows that being an American Indian with a complex lineage is not about being part something. It's about being part of something. So actually, the. The workshop leader was Bill Downey, and he introduced me to the women who would become the story. But of course, at the time that it was happening, I didn't know I was living the story.
4: Okay. um, My story, I first conceived of writing uh, my memoir. I didn't know what it was called back then. I was seven years old, and I was in a small town in southern New Mexico in one of these endless summer days and I was laying under a tree looking up at the sky and I said, I am going to write about my life someday because I don't think anybody can believe what it's like in this town, you know, being raised by my siblings with a neglectful mother. And I've always written, I've always written, Um, and it wasn't until later that I realized um, the book would be about being bipolar, but when I first conceived, it was just describing my life. And um, I also started at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference about nine years ago. I did not know how to write. I'm an engineer by uh, training, and so I took my first um, class in travel writing, and I have been writing ever since, so I'm a child of the... Santa Barbara Writers' Conference, and if you're just learning to write and you're here to learn, you're in a good spot.
5: So I started writing my book in a hospital. I was dying from an illness and, you know, don't worry, I'm here, I'm good. You all looked very concerned. For seven years I had an illness and no one knew what it was, and um, I looked for a book that could help me understand what I was going through being undiagnosed, because there's a lot of books on illness, but not what I was doing. And so I couldn't find it. So I decided to write the book I wanted to read. And I never wanted anybody in this world to feel as lost, and alone, and afraid as I felt. And it was one of the things that got me through, because I wanted to see my book published one day. And I did. So here I am.
2: Yes, if if something had happened to Sherry and she was a a ghost, this would be an entirely different panel. (laughs) Um, I will say, for those of you who are confused by the program, I forgot to mention that Harlan Green was originally supposed to be on the panel as well, and Harlan fell ill and had to go home. So he is not going to be joining us today. Hopefully he'll be able to do it next year. Um, so let's talk about memoir a little bit, and about, uh, you know, uh, for the people out there that are memoir fans, memoir writers, there are also a lot of fiction folks, Uh, one of the things that we always talk about in fiction is to, is to be honest with the the reader, and to show, you know, a little bit of yourself in your writing, but the, the thing that I like to say is that... Well, in fiction, we kind of hide most of who we are. Um, Nobody knows which character has our opinions, our own personal opinions. Nobody knows who is modeled after me, the writer. But in memoir, it's a different beast. You are putting yourself out there, every bit of yourself. And that's the the bad parts and the good. And I wanted... um, each of our panelists to talk a little bit about what that's like and uh, some, of the, some of the issues that that can lead to. I, I particularly want to start with Mary and, and talk about because when you write your memoir, there are a lot of people that are mentioned in it other than you. So Mary, you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: MARY uh, Sure. Um, the writing a memoir, which I, by the way, I also workshopped here at the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. Which uh, is a great resource when I uh, was here several years ago. But uh, writing a memoir is very difficult and is a special kind of writing. And people will come up to you and they'll ask you, you know. They'll say, I know you. I know you from your book. I know everything you think and everything you believe and everything you're going to be. And that's, quite, that's not quite true. And there are lots of other people also in the memoir. And um, you will get some, uh, for those of you who are considering memoir writing, you will get some uh, kind of blowback from the people who appear in the memoir. I decided, this is a choice, I decided to name names of the people. And not everybody comes off great. Not everybody comes off great in the, in the memoir. And um, I've had some complaints, but the problem is, is that I don't care. But. <laughs> And you might, you might care, you, you might care, so that's something to consider as you're writing a, a memoir.
2: Does anybody else want to talk about the, the challenges of laying yourself bare? Please, Connor, talk to us about it.
3: Well, as I mentioned before, I wanted to give voice to my difficulties and my trauma. I figured that was the best way for me to continue on the journey of healing. And also, at the same time, I wanted to help others, from my example, that hopefully they wouldn't have to experience what I had experienced. My parents had passed away when I published this second book, when I was finishing it up. But I do have a brother, and I I sent him a copy, and he read it, and he loved it. So that was really encouraging, and after that, I went for it. Uh, The second memoir, my experience in Vietnam, I've not had contact with any of those guys since kind of regret that in some way, but that was part of where I was coming from at the time, and I think they as well. Um, However, for both, I know I'll probably get some negative feedback. I just basically have to set that aside because I wanted to leave a legacy amongst other things, and I just got to take the bad with the good and go for it.
2: And I do want to add real quickly, one of the things that I noticed in uh, Conard's memoir, and this is a very sobering thing that sometimes we don't think about the vagaries of fate, but um, 58,000 roughly American service people died in Vietnam. 1,500 of those died on the day they were supposed to be sent home. Think about that. That's the kind of thing that, that haunts so many families, and it's just another element of why memoir is so important to work through trauma and work through the idea that, that such an unimaginable tragedy can happen to so many families. So, please, Tara.
1: Well, I had a similar situation because mine's memoir, and it's not only about me, it's about the women and a couple of men whose lives are braided with mine. And what I decided to do is I use first names only. A couple of my characters are very much like the limelight. They were hams. So I went ahead and I used their, their first name, and most people in the community know who they are. Others were private, so I gave them a different name. And when it came to my family members, I thought about do I use my children's name or use my husband's name. And then my husband and I joked, I said, well, if I called, said, well, my husband, Glenn, people would go, well, when was she married to Glenn? <laughs> so I couldn't do that. <laughs> And then the other thing is now that the book's out and readers are reading it, they go, "Oh, well, you've changed some of the names." Well, Luke was that really his name? And I'm quiet, thinking, "How do I answer this?" But if I tell you whose names I changed, then I'm not <laughs> protecting their privacy. <laughs> oh, you have it now? Sorry. Um,
4: One of the things I hear most often about this book is that it's shockingly honest. And it is very honest about a lot of things that I did when I was manic at 18 years old. And I've always been very ashamed of them. And so I changed the names of many people in my book, or everyone in my book except my family members. And so I think the biggest effect was on my husband, because people were like, oh my gosh, you know, how did he feel when he was reading it, um, I pretty much left my children out of it, and also in my siblings, um, three of them came out looking pretty good. One of them does not come out looking very good, and um, we were somewhat estranged before. I. I hope to God he never reads the book, um, <laughs> but I know that for sure the relationship with that sibling is um, no longer there, and so I did lose that, but um, we had always been just bordering everything. But um, many people, my sister in sin that I partied with um, asked that her name not be changed. The professor I had an affair with, um, he said I could use it, and I changed a little bit, but um, I don't think he really wanted that on record. Um, so yeah, there was, it, there's, you know, a lot of people are affected by your memoir and it's some pretty heart-wrenching information that comes out.
5: I second that. So I had a lot of doctors that I've seen over the years, we're talking hundreds. And all a lot of them were very, um, how do I say this, if any doctor's in the house, it's probably not you, but very much. In the arrogance category, and would send me on to die. So I'm sorry, I can't help you. So I had to change their names. <laughs> I started my memoir with Dr. Jones and Dr. Smith, and then it became how I saw them Dr. Know It All, Dr. Nose Hair, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Hormone, Dr. Loveless. And it protected me and it brought some levity into the book.
2: That's excellent. I love that, Doctor Nose Hair.
5: <laughs> he was really tall, and I'd always look up and see his nose hairs.
2: <laughs> so, end memoir. I I have not written one, but from talking to you, lovely folks, I know that the that the time taken, the years taken to write them varies greatly. Um, and over those time, over that, over longer periods of time, I'm sure that the the book and the narrative choices that you make kind of change. That the book evolves, maybe from one thing when you started into something else by the time it's done. And I'm curious uh, to for uh, Dale, why don't we start with you if you want to talk about that change and and how that affected your book as time went on?
4: Okay, um, I mentioned that I can first thought about the book when I was about seven years old, and I have been collecting letters and notes and all sorts of family um, memorabilia when both of my parents died. I took everything that they had written, letters and everything. And it took me eight and a half years to write this. And when I started, like I said, I started out thinking, oh, I'm going to write about living in you know, southern New Mexico. And then I'll throw in my father died. And then I started talking about my siblings fighting. And then I thought, well, maybe I should talk about when I was in college, and I started talking about how wild I was in college. Now, I was already medicated and had been diagnosed at that point, but I really had no idea this book would be about being bipolar. And so I started writing about the wild times in college, and then just the guilt and shame associated with that um, started coming to the surface, and it was about six years or six and a half years into it, I went, Dale, this is a book about being bipolar and your father dying when you were seven and him being abusive. That's childhood trauma. And you had a manic episode that you're not responsible for what you were doing when you were 18. And then I was actively in psychotherapy, bilateral processing, trying to figure, Tim to grips with my feelings on the book. And, um, you know, it, not to, Give it away, but they know it kind of ends with that. And so, um, I evolved as the story evolved, and I had no idea this was be a book called *Bipolar a Gift of Thorns* when I started.
3: I could I add a comment. Um, uh, yes, even though I said earlier I wanted to give voice um, in the process of writing these and giving and externalizing what was in my head and my heart on paper, I could look at it more objectively. And I did start to appreciate things a little differently, the tragedies that were involved here. And I got a little more compassion for my father, which he's in the first book. So it did change my understanding of what had happened to me
2: and then others around me. Um, so we're going to talk about the fun stuff. And that is, because everybody wants to know, what did it feel like? Give us a little bit of your experience of f- seeing that book in print for the first time, getting that you know that acceptance letter. Talk about what it felt like and what it meant because memoir is deeply personal, and I'm really curious to hear the reactions and what that was like
0: uh i I don't know. I I even put it into words, you know, I I don't have words. And uh, to see this uh, on the shelf for the first time, or to see it arrive at my door in a box, and they open up the box, it's like the greatest gift. And you just sigh. Because of all of the work that went into it. And it's a kind of love Across a crowded room, you know, just it was just love, uh, just all love coming from the fact that this was the final product of so much time, so much effort, so much heartache, really, and uh, it was wonderful. And you should do it too if you haven't already.
2: <laughs> you should.
3: Yes. Um. Yes. Um. I forgot the question.
2: <laughs> what was it like to see your baby in print, to see it, to get the acceptance? Just talk about the success, right. the victory, right. as it were.
3: Well, it, I think it built up over time the anticipation, the excitement, and the frustration. Of, now I've got to do this, now I've got to do that. Well, I went to, uh, after trying, uh, banging my head against the wall to get an agent for a while and doing some queries. We went into COVID lockdown, and about a year in, I said, pardon my French, you need to shit or get off the pot. (laughs) So, I'm lucky enough to be in a position I decided to use a hybrid publisher. What really thrilled me about both of these, and I can't tell you how deeply it touched me, and Sherry's sitting right here next to, to us as well, I did some cold requests for blurbs for both of them. And I got about eight or 10 uh, for each one. And they touched me so much that other authors, were, not knowing me, were willing to do this for me. And they gave me great blurbs, great reviews, and I wanted to appreciate them. Thank you, Sherry, once again.
1: My great moment was when I received the email from University of Nebraska Press saying, yes, we want to read your manuscript. You're not supposed to start at the top, but I did. My number one publisher, University of Nebraska Press, one of their specialties is American Indian Lives, and I wanted it bad. (laughs) And and so I sent my one-page query letter like we are supposed to do, and soon I heard back saying, yes, I want to read the manuscript, and that was my glory moment, and it got even better when they did want to publish it.
2: It's okay, clap, yes. Celebrate the wins, people. There's enough losses as it is.
4: Um, This might not be the answer you want to hear, but being shockingly honest, um, it's the answer you're going to get. I was like, okay, I I went through the query thing. I got nothing. I paid for the hybrid. Felt a little strange about that. And then I, I remember I got the, the trans, when I finally finished it and gave it to the editor and he, yeah, he came it back to me, we would went through that three times, and I kind of was like, oh, that's good, that's good. And then I got the first copy, but across the front it said ARC, you know, not for sale. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of good. And then um, that went out, and I don't, and then when it finally came out, and we got the, you know, the cover done and everything. I, I was immediately already freaking out about how am I going to sell it? Because you know you've been doing that <laughs> ramp up, reveal, tearing the sheet as the book you know gets exposed, and then I'm like, oh, how many did I sell on pre order day? And. I just became obsessed with selling it. And so Acorn, one of the many great things they do, they send you these little emails every week and they go, don't forget to sit down and just relax and you know, enjoy it. So I made a big copy of that and put it in front of my computer <laughs> so I would stop obsessing about you know selling it. My husband goes, honey, why are you so obsessed with selling it? I've never seen you work this hard about anything in your life, you know, because I only wrote... <laughs> So, I will have to say that this conference and being known and having a panelist on my little tag that I was wearing and sitting here and looking at all the people that are out there, many of you I forced into the room, but I still appreciate y'all coming. I think this in this conference and right now and this minute is probably the pinnacle of my executive.
5: And I get to go after that, thank (laughs) you. Now this is the pinnacle right now. I'm just gonna ditto what everybody else said, except when I really realized, that's horrible, when I realized when I got to where I wanted to be and I didn't even know where that was, is when my publicist sent my memoir to my alma mater, UCSD, and they published a two-page bit about me in the paper on my magazine. And then a few months later, the dean called me and said, I wanna meet with you, the dean of UCSD. And I thought, well, okay, you know, we had lunch, it was great. And he says, I want you to be the commencement speaker oh my God. for the 2019 graduation ceremony. And Madeleine Albright's gonna be the keynote. And I was like... <laughs> and I turned them down. What? And if Grace, you're here, you better listen to this. Because I already agreed to be here And it was was the Sunday night at the start of the conference. And then I called them back. I said, you know what? What am I doing? (laughs) Yes! (laughs) And I thought, I'm gonna do that, miss Sunday night here, sorry all of you, and then I'll arrive Monday. And I did. And that moment, I didn't really realize all the speaking engagements, all the stuff I was doing because I did a lot of inspirational speaking, I was walking down and getting up on stage and looking at 15,000 people. And the dean gave me carte blanche to say whatever I wanted. And um, that was it. It's all been downhill since. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and Cherry, um, as I understand it, you are, oddly enough, a, a big proponent of book burning. So I'm I'm going to need you to talk to people about that so that you're not, you know, taken out of the parking lot.
5: <laughs> well, I thought you'd never ask. Um, so no, I do not advocate burn, burn burning books as a general thing, but in one case for me it was a really important process. So I wrote my memoir when I was very very sick. You know, I had two goals, don't die was my first goal and then try to find a diagnosis and write the book was kind of the third, and the book I wrote in the beginning was so dark and so depressing, I didn't even wanna read it. And so I went down to the beach, and I did a bonfire, and I burned it. And I let it go. I was like, you know what, that's not meant for anybody else. It was for me. But a year later, everybody kept asking me, what's going on with your book? And I said, I burned it, and they thought I was crazy. Um, (laughs) You really were sick. And a friend of mine I had lunch with. Um, He said, what's going on with your book? And I said, you know, I burned it. And he just said, have you read the book, Larry's Kidney? And I said, no. And that was it. That's all he said. And I thought, this guy's crazier than me. Um, Two days later, Larry's Kidney, the book, not the kidney, um, (laughs) showed up on my doorstep. And I printed this out because I wanted to remember this. The subtitle is, Being the True Story of How I Found Myself in China With My Black Sheep Cousin and His Mail-Order Bride Skirting the Law to Get Him a Transplant and Save His Life. And I got what my friend was saying to me. He says, Sherry, you are funny and full of light. Put that in your book. So I went back and rewrote the book. Now, I'm not an idiot. I had an electronic copy. Instead of undiagnosed and very serious and dark, it's now a few minor adjustments.
4: And I will say her book is very funny, so get it.
2: As a side note, the sequel, Larry's Scrotum did not sell off. <laughs> um, so. We've talked a little bit about some of the good, but I think it's important to talk about something else, and that is that's, that's unique, I think, to memoir, and that is, um, and Tara, who apparently got her dream one on the first shot, we might not be able to express it, except for maybe other books. Um, memoir rejection. It's different than fiction. It's, it has to be, because it's the feeling of not your work being rejected, but you being rejected. So I'm curious to hear our panelists talk about the challenges of rejection and how to disassociate from that.
0: I had a lot of rejections of Girls in the Hood. Some of them right here in this room. And and I have a few favorite ones that I sent out so many queries. And remember the subtitle, A Memoir of Mama in South Central Los Angeles, and I had this one rejection from an an agent and he sent me this letter and he said, it was fine, but can we do something about that mama character? And I said, you don't like my mother. so. It's very, it, you take it very personally when it's memoir, it's a different kind of, because I, I do prose, I just finished a, a, a novel, um, so I do, it, cross genre if you will, so, but you take it very personally when it's memoir, because it's that they're not just rejecting your story or your writing or your effort it's as if they're rejecting you personally because it's about you personally or it's about the people you love personally and so that's why i said to that agent i said you don't like my mother really come on she's great so (laughs) so it you it's a stab in the heart but you go on and you believe in it and you still you still go on and you figure not everybody's going to like me or my writing or what I do. And um, I, gave myself, uh, 100 I gave myself a hundred rejections. I gave myself a task and I said, I'm going to send this out to a hundred agents. And so I, on seventy at 70, I was flagging and I said, this weekend, I'm going to do 30 so I can get off this horse. <laughs> I'm going to do 30. To get off this horse, and this is a true story. And in the seventy-first, the seventy-second, and the seventy-third agent uh, asked if I would if they could represent me. Wow. All in the same week after I said, "This is This is so crushing. All of these rejections are just so crushing." And it, I'm going on, but this is a thing with me. Um, um, Ten, I, I, had, for, I had ten people, I mean, I had ten pages, they asked ten pages. This one agent, he said ten pages. I said, okay, well, great. He's asking for a partial of the manuscripts and ten. Then he said, you know what? I need about 40 more. I said, okay, I'm going to send him 40 more. This is great. And then he said, I want to read the whole thing. I was so excited. This was early on, you know. I just didn't know what was ahead of me. And I was so excited. He said, I want to read the whole thing. And I sent it to him. And he sent me back an email that said, Not interested, period. And I said, well, just gonna have to go on. You know, I said, this guy's just a jerk, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go on. So anyway, I I went on and
2: I apologize. God, you're a better person than me.
3: (laughs) Well, I would echo the part, you just have to let go of the idea of getting rejected. Um, And I was able to bypass a lot of that, because I just went directly to hybrid publishing. Not directly, but almost. So that helped that, but it doesn't relieve the fact that you got to let go of getting rejected by somebody at some point.
1: I landed my dream publisher, but they did not publish the manuscript I submitted. I, they loved my story. They loved my writing. My editor sent me six pages of detailed notes of revisions we want. This needs to be expanded into a scene. This part, just on and on and on. And I loved it. It was, they gave me direction. They gave me a map to follow. And after my edi- I loved working with my editor. She was great. I would sit at her, she'd fire it right back. After she was completely happy with it, then it had to go to two main readers. And each reader had their critique of what they wanted me to do. And it wasn't always easy. I reached deep, and they turned me on a much steeper path that I am forever thankful for. So re- just be if you are asked to rewrite your manuscript, just be happy and do it. It'll be a better book. I don't have a comment, I'll just pass it on.
5: Yeah, I'm not sure I do either. I I kind of enjoyed the whole process because I was alive, so it it was good. (laughs) I mean,
2: yeah, the everything is gravy approach is awesome.
5: It definitely was. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't emotionally hard, but I had to separate... What we have to do in memoir, we have to separate our lives with our story. Because we're putting out a story. So when I burned my book, that first part was for me, the second part is for the world. So if you can think of it when you're looking for a home for your story, you're not looking a home for your life. You've got that. You're always gonna have that. This is a story.
2: All right. Go ahead.
4: Actually, I have changed my mind. (laughs) Um, I will say I hated all of my editors right since the very beginning when I was learning to write. And I cursed them. I mean, the first time I got edit, I got um, my editor told me to change things about some travel stories. It would take me three weeks to get over my anger before I could even start to rewrite it. And I would say to Jeff, what sounds better, this or this? And Jeff would always pick the editor. Piss me off. (laughs) And I hated him, and I hated Don Weiss, and um, I hated all of those people. Um, So I don't like um, being rejected, but when Acorn gave me, my last person who looked at it, she energized 2,000 verbs in my book, and I just accepted them all. It's just like, I'm tired, <laughs> and I think it was Betty for So, I didn't, I don't love editors, but they do, they do improve it, just do what they tell you to do.
2: Depends on your editor. Depends on what? Depends on your editor. Yeah. I I prefer to just yell, how dare those fools question my genius! (laughs) So a side note, for those of you who are in the query workshop, please don't query 30 agents in one weekend. I love you, Mary, but, but don't do that, don't do that. That's too many, too many. All right, we're down to what I think is my favorite question of this panel. And I think that this will shed a lot of light on what it means to write memoir and the effect that it can have, not just on the people who write it, but on the people that read it. And that is, I want each one of you to talk about the impact of people that come up to you after they've read your memoir and say that it meant something personal to them.
0: Um, I had a lovely experience at a reading at the Barnes & Noble Um, Sometimes your memoir gets to people that you didn't, they're taking stuff from it that you didn't know was even in there. And I had these uh, two uh, lovely elderly women come up to me after a reading at the Barnes & Noble and they said that they had um, been in post-war Europe as poor women in post-war Europe trying to survive in a chaotic environment. And um, they read my, both read my book. And they said, this is what it's like for a woman to be in poverty in a man's world. And you somehow got to that. And they thanked me. And I burst into tears right there in the Barnes and Noble because I didn't even know that that was in there, really.
3: Well, for me, it harkens back to what I said about authors giving me blurbs. I mean, I think they're a little harsher critics sometimes. Uh, Readers may be more raw in their feedback to you, whereas authors may be more uh, able to um, analyze your work better. So I felt grateful for the blurbs. But I have had one person, and that was my goal, one person read my book, each one is helped by it then I will have succeeded. There's one person, I'm not going to name names here, who has read this book, and as a result, has gotten into a recovery program to deal with her childhood trauma. So.
1: I don't know what to say. Readers, after they read my, my memoir, they tell me stories of their lives, and they connect with me, and I make friends. That I, And it's, it's, it's such a very strong sense of community that, that we've shared similar paths. The best reader story, though, came from a woman who met me in a bookstore. And she, she didn't realize that I had just given a reading, and she wasn't paying attention. And she said, oh, 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 I read that book. Oh, you were you were talking? Oh. And then she said, The only thing I didn't like about that is the little boy in the book shouldn't have died. He should have lived. And I said, Well it's memoir. I agree with you. He should have lived, but it didn't. And she was like <laughs> And but and she she was able to go with it and laugh and and then I, another, my favorite one, was, uh, so it was an email that came and a woman, I was reading your book on the L and on my way to work and I read right past my stop. I just kept reading. I was way out there. So just the, the endearing stories that come.
4: Um I agree with that. I have been so touched with the outpouring of emotion and um, the thankfulness from people who have read it and can relate to it at so many different levels. and it's just been an amazing process. People will read into your book feelings that they've had that are not necessarily what you're describing, but you're just um, that relate to them in an entirely different way. And The thing that touched me the most is um, our accountant, Tom, who is about as straight and boring as an accountant can be. You know, he's got two kids and he plays golf, and um, so he sent me an email, and it was even before he wrote the book, but he wanted to thank me for writing a story about being bipolar even though it wasn't related specifically to him, but he suffers from anxiety, OCDC, ADHD, and so did his father, and now his two children do. And he said, it is so important to talk about mental health challenges. And really, this book, in the end, after it was published, I realized it's about destigmatizing being bipolar and realizing that every family has mental health issues. And just like we have physical issues, we have mental health issues. So I think um, the outpouring of support and everything has been really overwhelming. So.
5: I feel the same. Um, I wrote this book to help people who felt alone from being sick for so long and not knowing why. And when you don't have an illness, when you have an illness and you don't have a name for the illness, you're ostracized, even the sick community. You know, it's just horrible. Um, but what I found is most people who like my book and really resonate with my book are people who are n- not sick at all. Um, I met a guy at the um, LA Book Festival and I, he walked up to my table and was talking to me and he was looking at my books. He goes, I'm not buying any books. I'm just looking. I'm like, I'm not selling really any books. Well, actually, I am. But, so we started talking and he comes back in the day and goes, you know what, I'm gonna buy your book. I'm like, okay. You know. He's like, but I'm not coming back tomorrow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I don't understand. So, the next day, he comes back like a beeline to me, first person there, and um, you know I've been exhausted from talking and all day long, and he goes, I stayed up all night and read your book. And he says, I couldn't put it down, that's what I get all the time, I'm like, slow down, it took me seven years to write. Um, but he says, you know, I've been on the brink of suicide, and he's like, you show me that I shouldn't give up. And so, I get that a lot, and I get outpouring of messages from people, because I went through something so horrific people can't understand, and I never gave up, even though I was close. And that just goes to show you can get through whatever you're going through. And so that's been one of the most beautiful things for me.
2: And as a genre guy that writes crazy stuff, I am in awe of how these folks can do what they do, because memoir is so personal and so intimate that when these folks connect with readers, it can change lives. That's a big deal. And it's a huge honor to be part of a community with you all, because you impressed the hell out of me. So everybody, please give them a big round of applause. All right, so we have a little bit of time for some questions. So if anyone has any questions at all, either for the panel as a whole or for an individual, please ask them now. Yes. You know, sure. I, the question was, um, I, I'm not sure if the first part was a question. Uh, no, that's just thank you for that. Right, that was a thank you. Um, the question is, the people in your memoir that don't come off looking great, can they come after you and sue you? How do you avoid
3: that? Well, I, I'm not sure about the other panelists, but for me, I did have one issue that I was concerned about, cousins that might react to what I had written. However, one way I got around that, I tried to reach out to at least one of them and got no response to say, I'm putting you in the book. But uh, the incident involved the death, two deaths in the family. And uh, it was public. I mean, it was on the news. So I had to tell myself, if anything else, my defense is I'm not saying anything that wasn't already out there.
2: Well, Mary, you're a journalist. My guess is you you actually know the, the libel slander type Yeah, but I'm not a lawyer.
0: I just play one on TV. (laughs) Uh, People can sue you. People will threaten to sue you. And then as a journalist, I would say, when I was a journalist, uh, not only was I threatened to be sued, I was sued several times. And truth is an absolute defense against that. That's something the lawyers would tell you, but I'm not going to give you legal advice. I would give you writing advice to say, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Just write it. Don't worry about that. Um, I have had one of my siblings, my brother says he's going to sue me because I said he wore boots and he's never had a, boot, a pair of boots before, and, and um, I just said, you know, and he said, you didn't get my permission to, um, uh, to remember all these things. And I said, Willie, really? I don't need your permission to access my memories. So sometimes people think that they have more power than they do. So just write it. Don't worry about will people sue me, worry about the names. Don't worry about that. Just write it would be my advice. Excellent advice.
4: I just wanted to add something to that. It, it's a good idea to just forget about the outside world, your family, your spouse, anybody that you're mentioning. Write the story. I did change names. Right, you know, the last thing I did, everyone except my family members. But one thing that someone said to me that I think helped a lot in my book is, whenever you're writing about someone you don't like or you hate, do it with love. Actually, Sherry, did you tell me that? Oh my God, it just <laughs> came to in her workshop, which was amazing. <laughs> it's and, all connected. And you know what? It helped me, and it made it a better book. And I think those people, when they read about themselves, will, you know, feel a little better about the book.
5: Okay. Anyway. Well, oh. since I said that, I'm just going to say that again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Holly, over there. You know, my question is for Dale. Your book was one of my very favorite books of the year. Thank you.
4: God, do the, I hate being the French honest. chef? Um, you, yeah, yeah did I read you it. Read that? How did you
2: The question uh, was what was the most difficult oh scene my to reveal?
4: Oh, God, Trey. Um, now I'm going to blush. It's
2: downstairs. Bye. It. You'll know it. what I'm talking about. That
4: was it. And I know my first time I wrote it, I wasn't honest. And then when Laura came to edit it, I brought it up to her, and I said, well, times have changed, and, but I don't know what to do, because I guess people do that a lot now, but uh, she is a romance, kind of a r- romance writer, and she said, I'll take care of it for you, and she changed like one or two sentences that made it okay, but um, yeah, so read the book, and
2: you come to The French Chef, you'll get it. <laughs> All right, anybody? Uh, yes, you right there. Josie, we'll get you next.
1: Um,
3: I'm wondering, and be honest, whether any of you either embellished, when a uh, feel from the truth in your lives, to embellish it, the characters or the stories, and or thought about maybe I should do auto fiction and not a memoir.
0: Okay. you have to tell the truth? Let <laughs> me see Brad's
4: first. It's called the Liars Club. The question was,
2: did any of you embellish um, Stretch the Truth and uh, whether if there was a difference between autobiography and memoir? I I no, that up. I'm not sure. or
4: fictionalized.
2: Or fictionalized okay. versus memoir.
4: It's called the Liars Club for a reason. <laughs> we do embellish and exaggerate. It's like a Hollywood movie. So yes is the answer.
0: I would say embroider. That's what the editor told it, said embroider it. embroider uh, yes. Because um, I have a scene in my book where my mother confronts one of my school teachers um, because I had um, kept calling the so-called founding fathers the so-called founding fathers in class. <laughs> and I got in trouble for that. And uh, in, the, in the original draft, I was not in the room when she uh, confronted that teacher. And my editor said, you know what she was like, what do you think she said? (laughs) And yeah, I I wasn't in the room. I knew what she told him. And I could see what, from her reaction and his reaction later to me, I saw what she said to him. And so that's in the book.
2: Okay. Um, Josie, did you have a question? Uh,
1: Dr. Hill-Wagner, coming from the academic world, and I suspect many of you have had your fill of academia, was it hard to separate that kind of writing to memoir writing? Did you feel at any point threatened that you'd never be able to write uh, from your own true voice again, having had years and years of graduates
2: to follow their The question, real quick, just, it, it, was it difficult to go from academic or journalistic writing? Uh, was there a fear that you wouldn't be able to find your own voice and write the way you, you want to after so many years doing it a particular way?
0: That is an excellent question. Um, I, I uh, have a PhD in mass communication from UNC Chapel Hill. And I was a college professor, and and I did the publishing or parish thing, so I have academic papers out there. Uh, However, it was not difficult because it's a different kind of writing. It's still writing. I mean, you learn how to be edited, okay. when you work, when you write for journals and so forth. So it wasn't difficult because my, my background in journalism is also a different kind of writing. So it's the difference between Italian, Spanish, and French. They're all romance languages, you know, but they're different languages. They're different methods of communicating. And that's how I saw it. So it, it act, for me personally, it was not difficult.
5: Okay, I love your answer, and I disagree for myself, because it was difficult. Because I was a scientific technical writer, and a lot of academia, and, um, and I was like, I don't know how to write a story. I mean, I've been writing my whole life. I love short stories and poetry, but this, something so different. So you're in the right spot. These conferences, these people, and one of my best mentors is in this audience, Matt Palomari who I just adore and helped me so much. So you're in the right spot, that's all I gotta say. All
2: right. Now, we have run out of time, but I will tell you that anyone else who has a question, here's the best possible way to get it answered. These lovely folks will be downstairs, sitting at tables in the bookstore, and if you go buy their book and get in line, they will sign it and answer whatever question you want. Okay. So thank you everyone for being here. This is a great panel. We have a good time. If you if you enjoyed it, feel free to tell Grace so that we all look really good. Okay. All right. Thanks everybody.